several weeks ago, um, some of us went to the Arkansas family camp, <clears throat> and while we were down there, <clears throat> there seemed to be a, a real burden on a number of the speakers um, concerning the uh, people that were in the meeting that were not Christians, um, but um, particularly um, young people that had been raised under the influence of the gospel and um, still were lost. <clears throat> and during those times, um, I had a lot of time. It was really a, a real good time for me to just um, take my chair and find a shade tree and sit and read. And, and I was thinking about that burden <clears throat> of um, people who don't know the Lord. And and so I, I began thinking about <clears throat> what are some of the characteristics of um, that accompany um, conversion. When a person comes to know the Lord, what are some things that are evident in their lives? Uh, right away. You see it right away. Uh, and um, <clears throat> so one of the verses that's just been a favorite verse of mine is um, in Isaiah 66. And uh, I guess if I was to put a title on this, I'd say, uh, where does God dwell? <clears throat> where does God dwell? <clears throat> we know he doesn't dwell just in buildings. <clears throat> and that was the question that the Samaritan woman asked the Lord in John 4, uh, we say that you worship God in the mountain, and you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And uh, the Lord kind of dispels that and says that the Father seeks those that worship him to worship in spirit and truth, that God is spirit, and that's who he wants to worship him is in spirit and truth, those types of people. And so I was looking in Isaiah 66, or this has always been a real a favorite portion of scripture for me in Isaiah. In the first two verses, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. <clears throat> and then also just skip back a couple of pages to Isaiah 57. We have a similar verse in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowliest spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. <clears throat> so we're seeing here that... Uh, 
Lord is telling us, he's indicating to us the type of heart that he loves to dwell in, that he's looking to. And there's these three characteristics that come out here. Humility, which David spoke on last week. So one-third of my message is taken care of last week. Humility, contrite of spirit, and taking God's word seriously, trembling at the word of God. In other words, the fear of God. Um, And so what I would like to do is just look at these three pieces here. And like I said, uh, these are these are characteristics of somebody who has just been converted. When there com- when a person comes to know the Lord, there is a there is at least in a measure a humility to get before God and confess their sins. And there's a contriteness. There's a sorrow for sin. There's a brokenness for sin. And there's a desire in their heart at that point to want to do what God says. And it's, it's, it's not complete. It's, it's a process that's begun when a person is converted. This is the entry into what it means to be a Christian. And throughout your life, those characteristics continue to manifest themselves, and they're a description of what a Christian is. And um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, these are descriptors of what a Christian is. And to enter into that, that's what it means to become a Christian. You enter into it. That's what happens at, at conversion. You get a glimpse of who God is in light of who you are. And the humility comes upon you. That's what David was talking about. True humility is when you get the right perspective between you and God. That's what true go to Philippians 2 because he did such a good job with that. But he alludes and you see yourself for who you are. There isn't any problem getting low. That's taken care of. The problem is, is we don't see sometimes God for who he is and we don't see ourselves for who we are. We have wrong view of that. And that's what David was alluding to um, so well last week in his message on humility. Humility in mind. That's what his whole thing was, considering others as more important, using Christ as the supreme example. And in that message, I'm not going to go to Philippians 2 because he did such a good job with that, but he alluded to another portion of Scripture that I would like you to turn to, and I'm just going to mention it briefly. I'm not going to mention everything he said about it, but I just want to bring out a, a, a little twist on what he said, and it's in Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> and this is that account of the parable of the tax gatherer or the tax collector and the, the Pharisee, both of them going up to the temple to pray. And I'm not going to go through and read through this whole section, but I want to draw your attention to just one verse and, and bring out a couple of thoughts on that, and then we're moving on from the humility to the contrite of spirit. 
because <clears throat> David, like I said, spent quite a bit of time on humility last week. But this verse, and he also, that is Jesus, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. <clears throat> and one of the things I would like to bring up, or three things I'd like to just mention from that verse there. Humility doesn't trust itself. Pride always trusts itself. That's what pride is. It's self-sufficiency. It's always trusting itself. And in particular, I want to address this in terms of spiritual things. Humility doesn't trust itself. Pride prides itself in itself. That's what pride is. Pride trusts the things it does. Pride trusts the way it thinks. Pride does that. Humility empties. David talked about empty. the Lord emptied himself. Humility empties himself of that and looks to the Lord. And what does the Lord say? Who, who is God? What does the scripture say God is like? It doesn't trust his own reasoning. Humility doesn't trust its own reasoning. It goes to God. Pride trusts its own reasoning about things. It's going to figure out what God's like. I can figure that out. So there's a distinction there. Humility doesn't trust itself. Humility doesn't commend itself. As you read down through here, you see this Pharisee. Boy, Lord, I sure thank you I'm not like those folks. I tithe and I do all these things. Hum pride always commends itself. Humility never commends itself. Humility is cast upon the mercy of God. It doesn't commend itself to God. If you look in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount there, <clears throat> the Lord is making that address to those false professors. And what do they say? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? We cast out demons. We did these miracles. We did all these wonderful things in your name. We did them. We did them, Lord. And his response is, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's pride. It's self. It's not humble. It's no, there's no humility there. Humility does not commend itself to God. Humility rests in what God has already done. Humility accepts what God says. Humility accepts what God has done. That's how a person becomes a Christian. You have to accept what God has done. You have, that's what John was saying. There's no works to bring. You don't, have, you don't have any works to commend yourself. You're empty of all of those good works. You empty that out. <clears throat> that's what humility is. Humility doesn't view others with contempt. Self-righteousness and pride always do. Now, it may not view everybody with contempt, but I'm telling you, self-righteousness and pride always manifest themselves in contempt for some folks. It always does. Now, you may not see it right on the surface, but you start digging a little bit and get into some conversations, and it doesn't take long before it surfaces. 
Oh, they're crickers. They live on that side of town. Oh, they're the jocks. It holds them in contempt. Oh, they're the certain certain people, or they're this type of person. There's that contempt. Why? Self-righteousness. Pride. If that's cropping up in you, you better examine your heart. Because humility sees itself before God, and there is no room. Like David said, he quoted that thing, uh, that um, piece from Spurgeon. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. That's what he said last week in the message. <clears throat> humility views itself in light of God and says, like Isaiah said in chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Isaiah came into the temple, had a vision of God, and his first response is, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm ruined. And that's what happens when you get a glimpse of God. You are undone. Yourself is undone. You're ruined. Why does he say that? For I am a man of unclean lips. There's sin. And I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips. I'm cut from the same cloth as they are. My lips are unclean. Their lips are unclean. There isn't any distinction between us. We're cut from the same cloth. Therefore, I can't be looking at them with contempt because that's where I came from. I came from them. <clears throat> Humility Humility is always demonstrated in a sense of lowliness for one thing. That, that is what humility is. But it manifests itself with a sense of brokenness over my sin. There's an attitude of being contrite over your sin. And you see these go together. There isn't this, well, here's humility, but I'm not broken over sin. That does, that, they're incompatible. You aren't humble if you're not broken over your sin. You're proud. If your sin doesn't bother you, you're a proud person. That's all there is to it. <clears throat> and if you're broken over your sin, there's a measure of humility that comes in there. It has to be. It just, they just fit. They go together. You don't separate them out. What is humility? And what is, David talked about humility. What's contriteness? Well, let's, let me just read you a definition here. <clears throat> Penitent, not penance. Penance are those things you do. This isn't saying that. It's penitent. It's sorrow. Suffering and pain or sorrow of heart on account of some serious sins, crimes, and offenses. <clears throat> Sincerely affected by a sense of guilt. One that repents of sin. These are all definitions out of the dictionary. Contrite. One that repents of sin. So there's a sense that you've sinned. You've sinned. And you're broken over that sin. That's what it means to be contrite. <clears throat> 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he brings this out, that this attitude must be and is evident in all Christians to some degree. The Lord says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What are they mourning over? Well, one thing they're mourning over is their, their sin, their own sin. That's the first thing they're mourning over. And uh, it's true if the Christian, uh, throughout his life, when there's sin in his life, he's mourning over it. He's wanting to get it right. He's wanting to repent of it. Um, <clears throat> in Second Samuel chapter 12, um, this is the account, and I won't read the entire account to you, um, but it might be good to turn there. It's Second Samuel chapter 12. This isn't a good example of <clears throat> what it means to be contrite. And this is where David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. <clears throat> so Nathan comes to David. Nathan's got the word that he's to go to David and confront him with this because the Lord told him to do that. And <clears throat> so he confronts him. And there's what, what's, I'll just kind of paraphrase it here. He tells him this story. Nathan tells him this story. There's a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man has one little ewe lamb. And this little ewe lamb is the pride and joy of the family. He loves the ewe lamb. It's like a pet. And he holds the lamb close to his bosom. And it's just he's, he's just part of the family. And this rich man has all kinds of sheep. And there's a visitor that's coming through, a traveler. And he needs to have something for dinner. So he needs to sacrifice a lamb. So the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and he slaughters it and he offers that for the dinner. And when David hears this story, he's enraged, he's incensed at the injustice of it all. And then you see in verse 7, and you know this is the story where... Nathan's confronting David about his sin with Bathsheba. He'd committed adultery. He had taken her husband, put him on the front lines in order that he'd be killed. So Nathan is confronting him with this, but he does it, he tells it to him in this form of a story. And when David gets enraged and he's incensed at the injustice, the that's just wrong. Nathan says, you're the man. And the question is, has that ever happened to you? Where God's finger points at you and says, you're the man. You're the one guilty here of sin. And you notice as you read down through here, Nathan tells him all the blessings, all the blessings that God has bestowed upon David. And then he says, if that wasn't enough, I would have done more for you. And yet you do this. You despise the word of the Lord and do evil. And David's David's response in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. But the thing that was pressing on him, and this is true for all of us, our primary sin is against God. That's who we've sinned against primarily. And what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it when God comes and he points his finger at you and says, you're the man. You're the one 
What do you do? Do you try to squirm out of it? Or do you get like David did? I've sinned against the Lord. Confession of sin. Confession of sin. Woe is me. I'm undone. See, that's the thing. When God comes and points the finger, do you try to wiggle out of it? Or do you own up to it? Do you confess it? Do you get before God in humility and confess, Lord, I've sinned against you in this. I have sinned against you. And seek his forgiveness. That's the entrance into the kingdom of God. There is no other entrance. You don't get, you don't get brought in any other way. God's going to point his finger in your life. If you're not a Christian. He's going to point his finger in your life. And he's going to say, you're the man. You're the woman. You're the one. And what are you going to do with it when he does that? Because that's the question you all have to answer. And every Christian in here has answered that question. I'm the man. I'm guilty. I've sinned against the Lord. That was the same question that came up in Acts 2 when Peter's preaching to the multitude on the day of Pentecost. And this is what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's what conviction of sin is, folks. When the word of God comes to you and pierces your heart, there's conviction of sin there. And look at their response. And they said to Peter, um, pierced him in the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Their response when the, when the word of God came and pierced their heart, their response is, what are we going to do? We are in a fix. Why? Because we've sinned against God. My sin is primarily against God. Now, it affects others, but it's primarily against God. <clears throat> and look at Peter's response. He says, Peter said to them, repent and each, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sorrow, repentance, a desire to turn from that sin, a turning away from it, looking to Christ in faith. That's what he said. Experiencing forgiveness. And guess what? you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells, you see. That's what we're looked at in Isaiah. That's where the Holy Spirit dwells. It dwells in hearts that are humble, contrite, and are trembling at the Word of God. They were trembling at the Word of God. That's where God likes to visit with folks like that. That's where he takes up his abode. He dwells in those kinds of hearts. and the believer and the unbeliever have the same message. If the believer is caught in a trespass, the same message goes to the Christian as to the non-Christian. You need to repent. You need to get low before God and repent of your sins and tremble at his word. And sometimes we take God's word lightly and we despise it. That's what David was doing. 
He willfully sinned. He was despising the word of God. He wasn't trembling at the word of God. He was despising it. He was taking it. He was just flippantly sinning. And what did he do? He, he was broken when confronted by God. He was broken over that thing. And for Christians, sadly, we do that. We get into a trap sometime. We do sin. What do we do with it? Do you make excuses? Or do you repent? Do you humble yourself? <clears throat> That's the question. Are you willing to humble yourself before God? There's no forgiveness if you're not going to humble yourself before God and seek his forgiveness. <clears throat> David, in Psalm 51, this was the psalm he wrote right after he was, well, I don't know if it was right after, but it was after he was um, um, convicted of this sin um, and he repented of the sin. <clears throat> And uh, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but if you'll turn to it, it's good to look at a few verses here. I think these are good verses to look at. I'm going to read the first four, and then I'm going to skip around a little bit. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. And again, David recognizing there in verse 4 that his sin was against thee and thee only have I sinned. I think, you know, he realized he had sinned against others, but his the burden on him right then was he had sinned against God, and that was the big issue. Um, <clears throat> and he acknowledges that God is just and blameless in his judgment against his sin and against sin in general. And uh, that's what you'll see, too. Uh, when God convicts you, you'll, you'll come to the conclusion that God's right and just and, do it and, and blameless in his judgments. When we think that he's not, it's because we're not seeing reality like David brought up last week. When you think God is unjust in his judgments, it's because you have a distorted view of reality. <clears throat> Look in verse 10 through 13. He's taught, this is wonderful. This is David's plea to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. <clears throat> Think about that. You can have a clean heart. God creates clean hearts. That's amazing. He, he creates clean hearts. When you humble yourself before God and confess your sins before Him and ask for His forgiveness and trust on the Lord, He just He cleanses you. You can't explain it. It's just done. He cleanses you. He gives you a steadfast spirit. And David's asking, renew that in me. Renew that in me, Lord. 
Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I want your presence. See, the, the Christian, when they sin, the, one of the things that's the most grievous is that you've sinned against God, but you've also, the presence of God has been withdrawn. Doesn't mean that you're lost, but there's, there isn't that communion with God. It's been broken. You're in a relationship with your wife, and there's a rift comes between you. You know it's not right. There's something between. You've got to get it right. And when you get it right, it's, you just, how do you explain that? There's communion. That's the only thing you can explain. There's, there's communion there. That's what happens with God when you confess your sins. There's communion with them. And then there's joy. There's joy. It's wonderful. And those, by the way, are the prerequisites for true evangelism. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways. When your heart is right with God and yours reviving in your own heart, you know that things are right between you and God. There's a cleanness. There's a sense of his presence. Boy, that's you want to tell people about it. You want to tell people about this wonderful Savior that forgives of sins. <clears throat> that's, what, that's what he's saying there. Then I'll teach transgressors thy ways. And then look at verse 17. Just to reiterate the point I started with. The sacrifices of God are a broken and spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God doesn't despise that. He loves that. That's what he delights in, is when people will confess their sins. And we, we're so resistant to doing that because of our pride. That's what keeps you from confessing your sin, is pride. <clears throat> so there is a sense, first of all, of mourning over my own sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But Lloyd-Jones brings up another aspect, and I think it's right, because the Lord, that's a description of the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But the Lord wasn't mourning over his own sin. The Lord was mourning over sin in the world. He was mourning, but he was mourning over sin in the world. And uh, it was alluded to last week in the meeting uh, about that sense of heaviness that a Christian feels for their family members that, are, that don't know the Lord. There is a sense of heaviness. There's a mourning. There's just a desire for them to be saved. So there is a sense in which there's a mourning for the sins around us and sins in the lives of those that we love that we would love to see experience the joy of salvation to experience the deliverance from sin <clears throat> the lord in in luke 13:34 says this o jerusalem jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those that sent her sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. See, the Lord's, the Lord's heart was for those people. 
There was compassion. Like David said, his desire was for others, not for himself. And there is a right sense for, for the Christian to have that desire for their family, for their friends, for ones that they work with, desire to know God. <clears throat> and there's a mourning over their state and a praying. <clears throat> and that's what we're to do. And that's, that's what we continue to do. And we continue to pray that God would <clears throat> have mercy on them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, No one can truly know him as his personal Savior and Redeemer unless he first of all has known what it is to mourn. It is only the man who cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Who can all go on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we truly mourn, we shall rejoice. We shall be comforted. That is the astounding thing about the Christian life. Your great sorrow leads to joy, and without the sorrow, there is no joy. So, humility, contriteness of spirit, and then that third point, trembling at God's word. So what do you do when you read the scripture, or you hear a wonderful message from the scripture? What do you do with that? Do you look at that and you sit there as a judge and an evaluator of that word? Or do you submit to the word of God and allow it to judge you? Or, to put it another way, do you take those pieces of the word of God that you read that you like, that kind of conform to the way you think and the way you would like to live, and say, yeah, I, I believe in the Bible and the, the Word of God, and here's my favorite passages. And you, you go to your favorite passages that make you feel comfortable and, and all of that, or do you view the Word of God as something that when you read it and you're convicted, you desire to change your life to match the Word of God? Do you desire for your, your life to be conformed to the Word of God? as opposed to the word of God being conformed to your life? It's a question you have to ask. Or, I think Charles is the one who said this, do you allow God's word, do you allow God's word to have its full weight in your life? And do you take God's side against yourself? When God says something, do you agree with God against yourself? That can't really happen apart from the Holy Spirit coming in and, and giving you that humility of spirit to be able to bow to the word of God. But that's what it means to tremble at his word. There's a verse that's um, <clears throat> one of my favorite verses in, pa- in Proverbs that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. You see, unbelief is leaning on your own understanding especially in those areas related to spiritual things. It's, like we said before, it trusts in itself, like that Pharisee did there in Luke. Trusted in themselves. That's what he's saying there in Proverbs. Leaning to your own understanding. This is what I think the Word of God means. 
and you try to rationalize it and reason it out in your own reasonings. It's really a question of who you're going to trust, God or yourself. That's really what it boils down to. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice and uh, holy and acceptable to God. And then he goes on in in verse 3 of chapter 12, and he says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You see, when you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, your judgment is impaired. It is always impaired when you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. You don't have the right view. And so you make wrong decisions. When your judgment's impaired, you make wrong decisions. You don't judge rightly. That's what he's saying. And and the reason for that is you're thinking more, at least one of the reasons is you're thinking more highly of yourself than you are. And you know this is true if you just think for a moment of some people that you know that are close to you that think they've got it all together. They really think they've got it all together. And they continue to go around the same bush all the time making bad decisions. All the time. Their life is characterized by bad decisions. And you talk to them and they've got it all together. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Allow God's word to have its full weight in your life. Conform your life to God's word. When we blatantly sin, we're despising God's word. That's what that's what uh, Dave it brings up there about David. Nathan said to him in that chapter in Second uh, Samuel twelve, "Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in His sight?" He de- deliberately went against the Lord. It's an evidence of despising the word of God. <clears throat> so then. <clears throat> The the Christian, the person who's humble and contrite, is looking for God to speak to him. He's looking for that. He's going to the Word when he's reading it, and he's looking for, for the Lord to speak. He comes, has fellowship with believers, whether it's at a meeting like this or over at lunch or dinner or just getting together, and you're looking, you're listening, you're watching them. And you're looking for the saints and you're listening for God to speak to you through his people. How does he do that? Sometimes it's a word they say. Sometimes it's the way they deal with their children. Sometimes it's the way they interact with people, their neighbor. You're looking and saying, oh, that's the way God would do that. You're looking for him. How do, you're looking for God to speak. The Christian's always got his eyes out looking for God to speak. <clears throat> You're out walking in the beautiful sunset. And I remember sitting on the, the porch there at Myrtle Beach the first time when we were there with in the ocean rolling in. And I had been around oceans, but not like that, where I'm just sitting there soaking it in. And it just takes your breath away. And you just, you might, your thoughts just go, we serve an awesome God. 
You're looking for God to speak in nature and creation. You're looking for it. You're looking for God to speak in situations that come up in your life. I can tell one on myself, I think, here. Um, But last Saturday, not yesterday, but last Saturday, I um, thought, well, I'm going to... um, Here's what I'm going to do. I've started my first day off with a June, July days off, my vacation. So here's what I'm here's what I'm going to do. Saturday I'm going to do this and this and this. Monday I'm going to do this, this and this. And I had it all laid out, all the things I was going to do. Saturday I have to trim my hedges. So I get up on the ladder to trim my hedges, and I step down, and I turn to pick something up, and my knee goes out from under me. And I'm going, oh, man, that hurt. And it popped. And uh, I was limping around all day, and it hurt pretty much most of the weekend. And I was really praying about it. Lord, I don't want to go to the doctor, because I know what they're going to say. MRI. $1,200. My deductible on my insurance, $1,200 or something like that. I was not planning to do that for this summer. You know, and the verse that came to my mind, you say you're going to do this and you say you're going to do that. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wills. I mean, it was just clear. It was just a word right to me, a rebuke. It was a rebuke to me. And it was that thing of, I'm making all my plans. This is what I'm going to It's not wrong to plan. But we have to be careful, don't we? We've got these things set out that we're going to do. And, the, and just you just twist your knee a little bit. You just do this. You get sick. And it, it begins to grow. And it's bad. And you're hospitalized. You don't know what, the, what it holds. And we really are dependent on God, moment by moment in these things. In summary then, where does God dwell? Where can you find God? Well, this is the one he, this is where you can find him. You find him in the hearts of people who are humble, contrite, and desire to do what God says in his word. They tremble at his word. That's where you're going to find him doesn't have to be in a building. It can be in a park. Just you and another brother or sister. God will be there by his spirit. That's, who he, that's where he dwells. He dwells with people like that. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, you know from experience that what I've been saying is so. You know that's true. You know and understand a little bit of the rest that's involved when you're humble and contrite and you're not trying to prove yourself you're not you're not trying to hide anything there's just a brokenness an openness a humility before god a humility before others you know what that's like at least in a measure you know the rest that's involved in that you know something of the comfort he gives when you confess your sin God's convicted you of a sin and you've been convicted of it and you confess it and you're mourning over it and the Holy Spirit comes and comforts you. 
You know, the reason God convicts of sin, he says this in Isaiah 57. Let me read it to you again. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly in spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's why God convicts you of sin. He wants to revive you. He wants that, he wants that communion with you. And so he want, he, that's what's coming between. He's the initiator. That's why there's conviction there. God's the initiator. He's initiating that. Charles was talking about don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't resist the Holy Spirit. When he's speaking to you, he wants you to be broken over that sin so that there can be that communion restored. For the Christian, that's true. And you know something of what it means to have that sense of cleanness and being free from guilt. You know what that's like as a Christian. You've, You've tasted some of that. Now, there's more to be had, but you know what it tastes like, and it's good. If you're not a Christian, you don't know any of that. You really don't. You don't know any of that. But you can. But it does require that you humble yourself and confess your sin to God, that you've sinned and it's been against God. And to seek his forgiveness. And to accept the sacrifice that he has offered on your behalf. The blood of Christ. It's the only thing that washes away sin. That's what we sang today. What can wash away my stain? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing. Not any of your works. Nothing can. You know, when I was a kid, the church I went to, we had to go in to confess our sins to a holy man, priest, and uh, then we had to say a certain number of prayers, and we would be forgiven, our sins would be forgiven. Folks, that doesn't forgive sins. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that cleanses from sin. There isn't any other cleanser. That's it. And if a person will do that, they will humble themselves, confess their sins, ask God's forgiveness, look to Christ. In his word, he says, this is who I'm going to look to. If you're looking to him and those you've done that and you're looking to him he's saying to you I'm looking to you that's who I'm looking to dwell in those kinds of hearts what a savior what a savior we serve why don't we pray father we're grateful this morning for the forgiveness of sins thank you Lord Jesus for saving a people, for creating clean hearts, for forgiving us our sins, for putting new life, new hope in us. Thank you, Lord, for putting desires in our heart to walk with you. Thank you for the conviction 
of sin when we when we find ourselves sinning, Lord, to be convicted of sin. We thank you for your faithfulness, not to leave us to ourselves, not to leave us to figure it out ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that you're the initiator in salvation. You're the initiator in restoration. You're the initiator all the way through. We thank you, Lord. We just fall upon our faces before you this morning and just worship you today for your great salvation. What a Savior. What a wonderful Savior we serve. We ask that you would be with us in the remaining time here this morning. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you and to one another and to serve you with gladness of heart today. We thank you for the privilege that we have as your people of gathering and singing your praises and looking into your word. We just ask that your blessing would rest upon us the remainder of the time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Does anybody have anything else to share? Would you like to give a report, Charles? Charles?